Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. This week, we'll hear a conversation with news correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro. Lazaro has served as special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour since 1985. He is also the director of the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. The program produces high-quality multimedia reporting and provides a forum for critical reflection on the world's most undertold news stories. Fred has reported in over 60 countries, from Haiti to Sub-Saharan Africa to South Asia. He is the recipient of two honorary doctorates, numerous journalism awards, and media fellowships from the Kaiser Family Foundation and the University of Michigan. Shumit Ganguly spoke with Fred DeSam Lazaro earlier this year. My guest today is Fred DeSam Lazaro uh, from the PBS NewsR, and he is also uh, the director of the Un- Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. I'm Shumit Ganguly, and I direct the Center on American and Global Security at Indiana University in Bloomington. What uh, we are going to talk about today is this uh, rather unusual project that he has undertaken, uh, which is referred to as the Undertold Stories Project. Fred, at the very outset, do you want to tell us a little bit about what exactly constitutes this project? Well, thanks, uh, Sumit. I am fundamentally a correspondent for PBS NewsHour, which is public broadcasting's long, uh, long-standing, long-running um, evening news program that was begun by McNeil and Lair, which are still household names in America. And it's one of the last places in American broadcasting or in American media in many ways that pays serious attention to, to the globe. And um, as one of the longtime correspondents on this program... I was an early adopter of the digital camera technology, which enabled coverage and work in parts of the world that hitherto had been very, very expensive to get to, uh, complicated to get to, for a variety of other reasons. I had the competence to get to many of these countries, notably India, where I'm native and you are, but cost was a major factor. And we developed a model that enabled us to get to much of the world now using this very portable technology that had not been portable and begin to bring news and stories back from the global south that there's no question in my mind that the American news audience needs to hear and needs to see. And we gradually morphed this into something that we found could be very compelling as a teaching tool in classrooms um, at every level from middle school to doctoral level uh, classrooms, and so formed this Undertold Stories project, first at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. I happen to have lived in Minnesota for much of my adult life, and um, now I'm at the University of St. Thomas. So fundamentally... It is an aggregation and, and a coherent uh, compilation, we hope, in time, uh, 
of a body of work that can tell Americans more about places that they rarely hear about unless there's a catastrophe unfolding there or unless there is something that affects our security, for example. Um, and we'll see where it goes from here. I'm just new at St. Thomas. This sounds utterly fascinating and particularly compelling at a time when, unfortunately, uh, major uh, news networks have really scaled back on the coverage of the world. Uh, there was a time when uh, major news magazines, uh, you know, you can think of Time, you can think of Newsweek, and I'm old enough to think of Life, uh, which covered the world and had far-flung correspondence. Today, one is hard-pressed, whether in print journalism or television journalism, uh, to get this kind of global coverage, especially at a time when the world is much more interconnected and the world impacts on us to a much greater degree. And consequently, what you're doing, I think, takes on particular significance for us. Yeah, well, I think the advertiser-supported model of journalism you know, has long since uh, been broken, has been long broken now, probably by more than a decade. It's, a, it, it's hanging on by the skin of its teeth. And so there's been a great deal of retrenchment. I can't speak very much for the print uh, side of this business, but it's you know, the model in general, newspapers and magazines, uh, is looking to morph into something new. And, and, and online, it's, it's beginning to flourish in many corners. And and the New York Times has an extraordinary online presence, for example. In a weird sort of way, in public broadcasting, we never had the resources to lose in the first place. <laughs> and so, so it wasn't uh, difficult to adapt to this new world and find new ways of doing things economically, as we always had done. And and just for perspective, I mean, what what we do at the Undertold Stories Project is you know is 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 a tiny little niche that we hope to grow, that we hope will have outsized impact. But in logistical terms and in terms of uh, of the scale of operation, I mean, we're a sub one million dollar a year operation, which is very very small for the amount of material we produce. And that's a, practically a trivial sum, right? Um, I mean, and it's remarkable that, that what you've been able to accomplish with such limited resources. I was wondering if he might take the conversation in a slightly a different direction. Mm -hmm. Where uh, have these endeavors taken you thus far? Is there a particularly compelling uh, case you want to tell us about? Well, we've, uh, we've got about 62 countries now on the map. I just compiled an interactive map, and it's one of these online interactive maps where you click on the countries and it shades the, the country in green or whatever color you want to. And we've got a substantial part of the world covered. Now, if you take away Russia, Canada, and the United States, which is which are three of those 62 countries, there um, then remains a lot smaller swathe of, um, of real estate. But that is really where we concentrate, Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, especially South Asia where I have roots and where we began this. Um, one of the biggest hurdles to producing especially television and video journalism, 
is that it's very visible. It's what Fred Friendly called a 60-pound pencil. You can't do the journalism as quietly as you might with a small notebook in your hand. And uh, navigating bureaucratic um, hurdles in India and just getting around historically was very, very difficult and challenging and expensive as a result of that. And so if you could do that efficiently and had a certain amount of cultural competence and system savvy, you were competitively ahead of the game. And I felt that that was where our strength lay um, in the world out there. And so I began doing a lot more material from India as a result and uh, literally forcing it down the McNeil air throat in some ways because I was being quite a pest. Uh, the, the appetite grew as we got into the 90s and the 2000s where India started to loom larger on the global stage. But it was a struggle for a while. But that's where our roots are, our, our competence is, I think. And, and that now expands into Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, and so we do a fair amount from that theater. But also, uh, I'd like to think quite a bit from sub-Saharan Africa and from Vietnam, Cambodia, quite a bit of Southeast Asia, a little bit of North Asia as well. In many ways, uh, this uh, reminds me uh, that, uh, you know, of a, a wonderful book um, by Harold Isaacs, who is a noted American anthropologist who wrote a book uh, called Scratches on Our Minds, American Images of China and India. Well, China and India are no longer scratches, thanks to your work and that of others. And of course, as you point out, because of India's rise in the 1990s, and of course, China looms very large. But sub-Saharan Africa still remains a scratch on our minds for the most part. We only hear about sub-Saharan Africa when there's some terrible outbreak of a pandemic or the prospect of imminent famine or some a terrible civil war that has cost untold lives. And right. consequently, I think this focus is particularly opposite to remind us that there is more than famine, pestilence, and disease. Right. I mean, there's a great deal of complexity across the country, I mean, across the continent. And the West in general and the United States as an extension of the colonial legacy in Africa has a certain amount of historical baggage to deal with in um, in working with sub-Saharan Africa, in working in sub-Saharan Africa uh, on on everything from aid programs to to trade, which I think is a very very critical American interest that we've tended to to not weight heavily enough. There are innumerable stories. We haven't done any particularly, but the News Hour and Paul Solman in particular, uh, our business correspondent, has done quite a bit of reporting on on China's endeavors across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, which are thriving. I mean, China has thriving relationships across the continent that um, are are trade-driven and will accrue long-term to China's competitive advantage, I think. And sub-Saharan Africa is a mineral-rich region fundamentally, and that is where I think China's focus is. And 
the United States and the European, you know, former colonial European rulers have have a competitive disadvantage at many levels, and and the relationships I think are complicated by the history of colonialism. But Africa certainly warrants a great deal of attention. Uh, there is a great deal of of texture across the continent in terms of the content of news reports that should come out of there. And if you looked at even the BBC news reporting versus what you see on in, generally in the American media, you'll see a sharp contrast in the focus of what's happening in Africa. You'd get a much more nuanced and textured view as opposed to the, the, the disaster coverage, uh, which is all we ever hear about from Africa. Yes, it, it is unfortunate that so much of our coverage is spasmodic. Uh, the BBC, despite recent cutbacks, uh, still manages to do much more sort of detailed, sustained, everyday uh, coverage, which makes a world of difference. Um, and now they're also online. They have a substantial right. online presence. I think it's in, in uh, their DNA in many ways, reflective, you know, um, of the fact that this is that you know the first B in BBC is British, and and there's a great deal of history there, and it's part of their DNA. They're very connected to a lot of what uh, is now referred to as the Commonwealth, for example, yes. but just global in 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 general. And I think this is a country that, with and I'm speaking of the United States of America, is a country that, with two important exceptions, uh, was created by people who were fleeing the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, that may account for why we have very much less interest in the affairs beyond these shores unless um, the impact of something happening overseas is an imminent uh, threat to us. And uh, I've, I've often wondered what drives that sense of insularity or the historic sense of insularity. And I don't want to generalize because that's not true. You'll find... Um, you know, a huge exception in, in places like Bloomington, you know, to this. I, I don't buy into the notion that Americans don't care about what's happening overseas um, because they certainly do. But when it comes to what the media has historically reflected, um, you will not see a great deal or you'll see a great deal of relative indifference to the affairs um, beyond these shores. I'm speaking uh, today to Fred de Sam Lazaro, uh, who is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. And particularly, we are focusing on his uh, project uh, referred to as the Undertold Stories Project, which uh, seeks to uh, examine parts of the world and issues that are not routinely covered in the mainstream press. And I'm Shumit Ganguly, and I direct the Center on American and Global Security here at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, uh, Fred, I was wondering, uh, of all these 62 countries that you've covered, is there a particularly compelling episode that comes to mind? Oh, boy. Do I have a favorite child? <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer um, at many levels. Uh, taking the journalist's hat off and looking you know, to... Uh, to how this affects one personally. I mean, I have forged a number of very, very close relationships with people who began as subjects of of a news report that we would have produced. Um, but it comes back to me 
cyclically in some ways. And, and were I to pick one particular story that really um, has stayed with me in a relationship that stayed with me for all kinds of reasons, it was a piece we did in 2004 in Kalimpong, which is in northern Bengal, uh, in, in India, right along the Nepali border. And this is uh, in the Himalayan foothills. It's a very, obviously, mountainous area and um, a very hard life for a lot of people who live there um, at the margins of, uh, of the society. Kalimpong, historically, was a hill station where the British built um, these fancy academies for kids to escape so that the kids would escape the, the teeming and very hot cities like Calcutta and, and Delhi. And so it still has these very um, highbrow education institutions and boarding schools. And one of them was run by and is run by the Jesuits. And there was one Jesuit priest, he was a Canadian guy, uh, Father McGuire, who always wondered about the kids who, you know, who ran around on the streets. These were the kids of, of uh, the lowest caste, and they had never entered a school, and their parents had never set foot in a school unless they were, uh, they were cleaning it or something. And he tried to bring these kids together and give them an education that would work for them. And he said, I, I would see them running around in the streets, so I tried forming a gymnastics program, and they wouldn't. Um, they just didn't take to gymnastics. And then I thought, maybe I'll try music. And so one day in the big academy, a violinist from the Calcutta Symphony was, was visiting, and Father McGuire pulled him aside and said, would you mind talking to this group of kids that I bring in certain afternoons? They're just street kids. Just come and play for them. Because uh, and and then don't be embarrassed if you know they lose attention, you know they lose interest um, and they're distracted. And he said, "No, I'll I'll do it." He played for thirty minutes to pin drop silence and rapt attention from these kids. They just really took to this music, and this gave McGuire an idea. He says, "You know, how about if I started a school uh, for these children and added some structure to it, but gave gave them something to build their self esteem." So he founded something called the Gandhi Ashram School in Kalimpong and began to take in kids from the lowest caste, the street kids. And from day one, these kids are given a violin, and they learn to play um, play this instrument. They play all kinds of music. And by the time they're in fourth or fifth grade, they're very good, and they play a um, wide variety of music. Not all of them are proficient, but they have something that really boosts their self-esteem. They have a reputation now. They play. They perform all over all over town. So it was an extraordinary story. And whenever you have, you know, good-looking kids and, and music, you can never lose with the story. And one of these chil- children, Kushmita, was just extraordinarily talented. As you would find in any random group of children, you'll find a prodigy. And Kushmita was a prodigy who was discovered by a German volunteer who happened to go, come by and to volunteer in the school, and she was a music teacher, fell in love with this child, took her to Germany, where she was admitted into one of the most prestigious conservatories in Munich. And uh, 
you know, is now thriving. Now, we caught up with, with Kushmita a couple of years after that story, a year after that story. She'd been in Germany for 10 months. She spoke German like a German uh, in that short period of time, which we attribute to a very keen year. And uh, she developed this incredible proficiency in a language she'd never heard. And her musical skills, her musicianship, just skyrocketed. And she practiced four to six hours a day. And she then was able to play in chamber uh, groups in, 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 in Bavaria. She went to Nuremberg to college, and she's a thriving musician, and um, she's now back in India but travels frequently. And that story has stuck with me because there is so much potential in the world um, that is hidden under rocks that just need to be uncovered. And when you can find these really human and humane stories... It's a thrill. So of the hundreds of stories that we've reported on uh, in short documentary form, that probably sticks out in my mind as, as, as one of the most lasting and enduringly impressive ones to me for all that it told us about the human condition and what's possible. This is a kind of an exemplary story. I mean, uh, who would have ever imagined? Uh, and it's a whole conjuncture of circumstances that makes this young woman's life right. completely transformed. Right. Um, it's, I mean, you know, well, one doesn't want to sound maudlin, but this is really heartwarming uh, right. that someone took an interest in her, this uh, Catholic priest takes an interest in these street children, and this particular girl performs especially well, catches the eye of a visitor, and thereby hangs a tail. Right. And I think uh, we report quite a bit on social entrepreneurship and our general approach at the Undertold Stories Project is what we call solutions-oriented narrative. So wherever we can find somebody who's having an impact in dealing with, with some of the world's most pressing problems, uh, we look for that. We look for that person or for that organization because it makes it infinitely easier to get people to watch, frankly, because a lot of the reporting that we do from this wide swath of geography is about human suffering. And human suffering does not draw audiences to screens. You just It's very natural. We don't like to tune in to see people who don't particularly look like us in some form of misery. Who needs that? And I'm not talking about the emergencies that occur. You know, when there was an earthquake in Haiti, there was an extraordinary outpouring of generosity and sympathy. That's not the problem. The problem are the slow-moving disasters. Yeah, and, and how do you keep reporting on them? And so when we can find a solutions narrative, like Father McGuire's story, for example, it just makes it so much easier to highlight these problems of poverty and human suffering and what can be done to it. You have a solutions narrative. There's a very eminent woman who happens to also be a Catholic religious named Sister Cyril Mooney. She um, is a pioneer in education in Calcutta. The other nun from Calcutta, shall we say, yes. one who's every bit as, as, as eminent, 
and has been awarded in you know some of Indian the Indian government's highest honors, the Padma Shri. But she has transformed the way uh, children are taught in that city, and the government has has now adopted her model, and it's and it's being propagated across the city and across the state of West Bengal, where Calcutta is. And so, likewise, across the landscape, um, we're finding uh, individuals doing extraordinary things to transform the lives of people and make them better. Um, the key challenge, of course, is scaling these up. I mean, is this a flash in the pan? Is this is this something just that's exceptional, or is it something worth um, worth learning about on a broader scale because it has the potential to be replicated globally? Uh, two issues immediately sort of come to mind. One is uh, something that you hinted at uh, in your uh, remarks uh, is that uh, stories like this actually generate a degree of human empathy uh, mm-hmm. that one can find a way of identifying. It's no longer you know, some abstract notion of human suffering, uh, but a very concrete example and a pathway out mm-hmm. of that uh, terrible plight. Um, that's one. And the other is, uh, from a standpoint of public policy, these are two very different responses, uh, as you also hinted at, uh, that one hopes that these are not sort of flashes in the pan, that uh, these will have a kind of a demonstration effect. And it sounds like it has, because you mentioned uh, the uh, other nun, uh, Sister Mooney, in mm-hmm. uh, Calcutta, that the West Bengal government has taken cognizance of her teaching methods and thereby uh, trying to adopt some of those methods. So right. that it could have important demonstration effects for public policy. Right. One of the things we have to be careful about in, in journalism is um, to not get carried away by the cute feature story. And, and there's some virtue in it. Um, but the bar has steadily gone higher on what we qualify as a story worth telling. There are a lot of people in the world doing extraordinarily great things. And now uh, we've had, as we have, have covered social entrepreneurship, we've had to look for certain other attributes. You, you can't just have a nice little model that works well in, in your one region. It needs to be something that has demonstrated that it can scale to impact a sizable number of people and show promise, if not demonstrate in real life, that it has impacted a lot of people. And uh, and so that is the way you know we, we choose to do some of these stories. And there, there's just a lot of it that still remains un, unreported because, um, you know, there's... There's there's uh, only so much room that we have, uh, even though the belly of the online beast of the news hour is, is huge and will take more. There is a limitation on resources. We do quite a bit online with social entrepreneurship that isn't broadcast. But on the broadcast side, uh, you know, how the New York Times says all the news that fits, that's fit to print. Yes. On, on a broadcast, it needs to be all the news that fits. And, and we're really competing for shelf space in many, you know, in, in a real sense. There's a lot happening in the world, so to get these kinds of stories on is, you know, is a challenge and, and is an elbow shove uh, here and there. But it, uh, I'm in a good place uh, in terms of getting them on because you know, I'm, I just I don't know where else we would do what we're doing. We we would ply what we're doing, but the news hour. 
I'm Shumit Ganguly, and I'm speaking uh, to Fred Desam Lazaro, uh, who is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and specifically about one of his particular endeavors, the Undertold Stories Project, which is based at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Uh, Fred, if uh, we might shift gears again Mm -hmm. a little bit and talk a little bit more about the enterprise itself and specifically what I have in mind are what what are some of the principal challenges that you've encountered, both material and organizational, in sustaining an endeavor of this magnitude? Yeah. Well, it, um, magnitude would not be the word that comes to mind in describing what we do. We're, um, at the core, a two-person team. I work with a producer named Nikki C. And then we have connections with, with fixers um, who typically are local journalists in a variety of regions uh, around the world uh, with whom we're in regular contact to uncover stories What are you reading over there? How is it resonating? Where is it ricocheting? So we have these relationships with them, and then we we have relationships with camera crews uh, in various parts of the world. Um, We have our uh, person locally, Tom Adair, who works with us frequently out of Minneapolis, and the three of us fly to a lot of destinations, but we have um, very, very good camera crews in both Delhi and Islamabad, for example. Uh, we have crews in South Africa. We sometimes will use local people where where local savvy about the system is at a premium and is, is paramount. Um, there is a great deal, in, and this is true in China as well, if, um, if you have a Chinese crew, you will take pictures, for example, that no foreign crew will be able to take because if you are not Chinese, you are going to draw attention to yourself. So you have to take into consideration a lot of nuances uh, like that, uh, a lot of local circumstances. And a lot of it is just being in touch with people and reading a lot about what is happening in the world we then try to distill it down to who's doing what. You know, is somebody else in the news hour world covering a certain area? And, and what's undertold about certain stories? Uh, one example that pops into my mind is the Ebola epidemic that was happening last year. And we actually had tickets and visas to go to Liberia in the thick of it. And then there was a concern that then arose about insurance, I mean, rather, um, not just insurance, but could we return? Because we are what are called parachute journalists. We go into a country, spend a few days, and then come out with the reporting. We're not based there. And there was a a grave concern that there wouldn't be a flight out of the country at that time because all of the airlines had ceased operations there with the exception of Brussels Air twice a week, and that was imperiled for a while. And uh, I think Royal Air Maroc had a flight as well. So a decision was made, you know, above my pay grade to to not send us in. And and frankly, I didn't think that we would be able to add anything more um, to to what was already being reported by by people in there. Very very brave and courageous people doing some extraordinary journalism from in 
in there and talking about some extraordinary public health workers in those countries affected by it. But we looked for an undertold story that that was just staring us in the face, really. We looked to do that, and that was in Nigeria, which is many times the size of the countries that were affected by Ebola. You know, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and Guinea, um, I don't think, have a population together that is half the population of Lagos, Nigeria. And there was a period of utter terror in the public health community about what would happen if you had a serious outbreak of Ebola in Lagos. It would have been utterly apocalyptic. But it wasn't happening. And they managed to control this epidemic and stave it off with an amazing effort, coordinated effort across the disciplines, across the sectors, in a way that one does not associate with Nigeria in particular. It is one of the more dysfunctional places we've ever worked in. But on Ebola, things came together remarkably to essentially pull off a miracle and stave off this epidemic and really contain it when it began, which the other countries couldn't do. That is an undertold story that we... uh, That's the kind of story that we try to tell. Uh, We have a limited budget, as I said, and, you know, with any luck, we'll be able to scale ourselves. Uh, We're located on a a university campus, which um, in time we hope will provide more resources. And one of the efforts of this project is to go beyond the broadcast and online um, public media audience and target classrooms in particular, and bring this content in in a way that uh, triggers discussion in classrooms about these issues. Journalism speaks in the vernacular of the street. It's not like textbook learning, and so it's very powerful, especially on video. And so what we've found very effective, and our documentaries are seven to nine, ten minutes long in some cases, and they're wonderful for starting a classroom discussion. You have an hour-long class, for example, takes seven minutes to begin a discussion on the issue, um, on, a, on a relevant issue, but begin with this glimpse of real life from one of our reports. It's sort of like Ted Koppel's Nightline, if you remember it. Very well. Which began with a field report. Yes. And then came back to the studio in which experts like you, uh, Sumit, were interviewed uh, to analyze the situation. But you got a glimpse of what people were talking what the experts were talking about because you just glimpsed real life and we're the real life part of these issues and we're bringing them into the classroom, organizing it um, on a website so that it's accessible um, you know, to teachers at all levels to bring into the class. So that is also part of our Undertold Stories project effort. I think that's a very worthwhile endeavor, and particularly with undergraduates, to sort of capture their imaginations with this very vivid depiction of an issue um, rather than simply what's available in a textbook um, or uh, an assigned article, uh, which has all of which is appropriate and desirable, but to sort of seize people's imagination, uh, precisely the kind of 
a short video that you're talking about right. uh, can be highly effective. Yeah. And you know, one of our slogans in the project is making the foreign less foreign. And there is so much that is not foreign to our young undergraduates today by virtue of um, technology mostly. But the world is just so much more connected or, or at our fingertips globally. We just need to direct those fingertips to places where they uh, can get meaningful understanding of what's happening in the world and see meaningful opportunity. I mean, we report on a lot of young people from the rich world who've gone in to the not-rich world and tried to have an impact and uh, have done extraordinarily well. I'm Shumit Ganguly, the director of the Center on American and Global Security at Indiana University in Bloomington. And I'm speaking today to Fred de Sam Lazaro, uh, who is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, about his project, uh, the Undertold Stories Project. Uh, Fred, we've covered uh, quite a range of topics and a number of uh, different themes associated with this utterly fascinating project. But I was wondering one thing. As a journalist, I'm sure you've encountered this in other incarnations, but particularly for this project, do you run into a government interference where they feel nervous that you're poking or prodding into areas where they'd rather not have a foreign journalist, you know, explore uh, something that's perhaps not, uh, doesn't present the country in the best possible light. All the time, Sumit, or, or frequently. And journalists learn to work around these hurdles. Um, it, it, it's not easy in some cases, but it is easy in many other cases. There are, in many countries, huge bureaucracies in which, from our purposes, um, are not difficult to work if you know how to do so. And that is, that is uh, where fixers locally come in very, very useful. They, will, they know the right people to contact. They know how to get equipment in if that is an issue, for example, which it is in some countries. They know how to get in touch with the right officials and manage to pull things off that uh, you know, don't, don't cause a lot of ripples after we've left. That's the other issue that we, we really do have to um, be mindful about. Is, is, um, we, will often, you know, we will often be presented with an opportunity to, to do a story that's ticklish locally for political reasons with the full knowledge that we we have round-trip tickets that will get us out of the country in most cases, not all. Uh, sometimes there's a threat of not <laughs> being able to use the return portion. But in many cases, um, in most cases, we can just go. But we're leaving behind people who you know, will suffer, in some cases, grave consequences for associating with us if powers that be are annoyed by something that comes out of our project. And sometimes it doesn't even take that. I mean, we had an incident several years ago in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a very, very dis dysfunctional um, country. And, and uh, the fellow who was our fixer um, came under extraordinary pressure and scrutiny for reasons that we, we really couldn't fathom. I mean, there was a, 
um, they didn't even know what the product was that was coming out of our our, um, our location shoot. It was actually a documentary about the elections in Congo. It was politically fairly innocuous, actually. It was a wonderful, colorful documentary that was a primetime uh, PBS documentary. It wasn't a news hour project. It was called Democracy in the Rough. It was a great um, experience, and the, it was a colorful documentary. It was well-received. But Mike, our fixer, our local fixer, got... You know, came under scrutiny from the authorities. I think they just wanted to to shake him down for for uh, some money. They thought he was making an awful, awful lot of money. They they uh, he might have annoyed one of the candidates. I mean, there were all manner of reasons. And and um, long story short, uh, we um, had to get him out of the DRC. And he you know has lived in Minneapolis now for the last several years with his family uh, because he had to escape. So that's one of the extreme examples of um, of how sometimes our work can be can be ticklish and for unlikely reasons. This strikes me as a particularly unlikely reason, but mm-hmm. in a dysfunctional state, that is hardly surprising either. Right, right. Uh, I mean, these things are hazards that one has to encounter, but it's it's a uh, sort of speaks extremely well of you and your colleagues that yeah. you managed to get him out of the country and not leave the man in the lurch. Yeah. Well, we would, uh, yeah, we, it's it's a plain and simple right thing to do in that case. Yes. I mean, he they, there was a threat to his life. Um, we, you know, we'd called the UN, which essentially run, you know, ran the country in those days and asked them to, to keep an eye on this family because they were threatened. They said, no. They don't belong here. They need to get out. This was, you know, this was the UN peacekeeping force that was there. So it can get complicated. Sometimes there are, you know, there are ticklish issues. We had, uh, we had some issues covering the the um, the law in Uganda that outlawed homosexuality, for example, and had to deal with and fire a fixer who just didn't like the idea of doing this story. Um, it is just an extraordinarily ticklish issue in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa and in Uganda in particular. And you might recall a couple of years ago there was uh, this law that was being um, considered to essentially outlaw homosexuality, period. And uh, that was very, very difficult. And uh, we got into a number of ticklish situations uh, trying to get access to the people um, you know, that one needed to to do this story. I can well imagine that uh, uh, that's a particularly fraught issue in various parts of the world. And in right. the Ugandan case, it received considerable attention. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we are unfortunately nearing uh, the end of our conversation. So um, what I thought uh, I might do is to get you to look a little bit, sort of peer a little bit into the future. Uh, you've obviously covered uh, just a plethora of fascinating uh, subjects, but I was wondering if you might give us a little sneak preview of what you might have in the pipeline uh, and what are some of the other stories that you might hope to cover mm-hmm. in the foreseeable future. Right. We have a long wish list, and and, and um, how much of this will ever realize, be realized, I'm not entirely sure. Um, more immediately, we've got a... Um, 
a bushel full of stories from India uh, on a recent trip. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with um, something that you know I'll be talking to you about and, uh, and, and, and you'll be in this uh, in these reports. We're talking about the Indian economy, which is one of the 10 largest in the world. Um, it's seen healthy growth. It's getting more attention as, as people wonder about what's happening in China. And India, in fact, has a, a growth rate, I believe, that's now you know, faster than China's. And an astonishing statistic from India is that most of the workers, 90, 90% of the workforce in that country, is in the unorganized sector. These are people who, from an economics perspective, are not counted in many of the statistics, but from a human rights perspective, these are people who work day-to-day, who are paid daily, which is to say, at the end of a long day's work, they are paid, abysmal sums in in, in, in the majority of cases, and um, have no guarantee that they'll be employed tomorrow. Uh, and that's that's a sobering thing to think about. And we have... Uh, a couple of solutions-oriented pieces about it, one uh, about an organization that is trying to organize food vendors in India, and there are probably tens of millions of them across the country. And we're also working, um, on the other hand, with a set of rural workers to uh, look at their plight. So we've got a number of things coming out of India on the um, unorganized sector. We've uh, I expect that we'll be doing some work in Southeast Asia and uh, in particular in Indonesia, which is a country that doesn't get as much attention as its size, I I think, uh, requires. It's just not commensurate. It is the largest Muslim nation in the world, and I don't think the American audience has glimpsed um, that branch of Islam, if you will, uh, the geographic branch of Islam, um, as much as as uh, we ought to have presented it, and so I'm looking forward to uh, to going there as well. And we'll we'll keep tabs on a number of of theaters. We probably will go back to to um, Sub-Saharan Africa as well. I might go back to the or go to the Ebola uh, affected countries from last year to see what's happening there. Yes, particularly because uh, once the crisis was contained, Ebola really kind of disappeared um, from our discussions. Right. And now it's a Zika virus uh, that's uh, right. uh, foc- that is the focus of our attention and that of the World Health Organization right. uh, and the like. Exactly. And one of the major categories of undertold stories that we do, um, something I call whatever happened to stories. Uh, one that I did not mention that I'm likely to go to is is um, the story of garment workers in Bangladesh. Uh, you might recall a couple of years ago where there was this major um, industrial accident in which you know 1,100 garment workers uh, were killed under the rubble of a building that collapsed. And it got a great deal of attention, a great deal of resolution to make factories safer in Bangladesh. It gave the American audience a glimpse of of this uh, of this industry that they had um, very little knowledge of, uh, and yet 
you know, I'm willing to bet that in every American's closet are garments made in Bangladesh. It's second only to China and probably will overtake China as the largest garment-making country in the world. So what conditions are they working under and how have those promises, how, what, what's the follow-through on the numerous promises that were made to make life better for the garment workers and to make the factories safer? That's another one of the stories that I really want to keep tabs on. Ah, that certainly seems uh, important and worthwhile uh, because, uh, as you correctly point out, that Bangladesh is about to supersede China in the in the global garment industry. But and on that on that note, it sort of brings to mind something else. Uh, having just recently returned from Nepal and seen some of the devastation that the recent earthquake caused. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a good deal of coverage of the earthquake in its immediate, uh, immediate aftermath. But after that, Nepal again has sort of fallen off the map. Right. And it might be worthwhile to consider a visit to Nepal Absolutely. because some of the most gorgeous artifacts, uh, ancient temples, just completely collapsed uh, because of the sheer magnitude of the earthquake and the sheer impact of the earthquake. And in a fairly desperately poor country, which doesn't have the resources for cultural preservation, and they are struggling uh, as they seek to Mm -hmm. somehow restore at least some of uh, this glorious uh, heritage. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's certainly a story worth covering, and we may we may well go there as well. Um, it's just a short hop from India, as you it well is, know. Yes, indeed. It is indeed. I have been in a conversation with Fred de Sam Lazaro, who's a correspondent for the PBS NewsR. I'm Shumit Ganguly, and I'm the director of the Center on American and Global Security. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.